0: Hey everyone and welcome to the Generations United Church podcast. A podcast for GenU by GenU where we discuss the Bible, church, culture, and all things relevant to a life following Jesus. My name is Luke Williams and I am the pastor of GenU's online ministries and young adults. If you are new to GenU, head over to our website genuchurch.com and find out about our services, events, and community life. Today, we are wrapping up our series Beyond the Page where Pastor Tommy Brown interviews different authors. Today's conversation is something very special. Our guest today is with Rabbi Arthur Kurzweil. Rabbi Kurzweil is a Jewish scholar, author, educator, and publisher. He has written seven books, including The Torah for Dummies, From Generation to Generation, How to Trace Your Jewish Genealogy, and Family History, and two works centered on Rabbi Kurzweil's personal teacher, Rabbi Aidan Steinsaltz, who is considered to be one of the most brilliant and influential rabbis of our time. Rabbi Kurzweil shares about his life and his beliefs in wonderful and challenging ways, especially his views of Jesus, which, as you can imagine, is quite different than Christians. What he shares about his life and work are beautiful examples of the ways we can change the world and share the love of a benevolent God. I hope you will listen with an open heart and an open mind. So, without any further delay. I hope you will enjoy Rabbi Arthur Kurzweil.
1: Um, Rabbi Kurzweil, can you hear me okay? Loud and clear. There you are, my friend. I've been looking forward to this night, and uh, as have the people who are gathered in this room, you can see some of them. There are some of them off the screen, but uh, they're all eager to meet you. They've uh, met you by virtue of the stories that I've told uh, over the years here. But uh, I would love it uh, if you would just tell us a little bit about yourself and so that they can uh, they can get a feeling for who you are and what you're all about. I can't believe we're doing this. This is so wild to me. This is actually happening. So I just love it. Yeah, tell them a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind.
2: Not at all. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you and and. you. Uh your congregation, those present, for, for hosting me this, this evening. It's an honor to be here and to, and to talk with you, as it always is. Um, a little bit about myself. I um, was born in New York, and I grew up in New York. Uh, so I've been a New Yorker just about all my life, with a couple of side trips every once in a while. Um, I'm mostly a writer and a teacher. Um, uh, I don't have a congregation I uh, never wanted to have a Asian, uh, but I've always wanted to write since I'm a little boy, and I've had the uh, privilege of uh, writing seven books at this point, and uh, one of those books is about to be published uh, quite soon. Um, I write in the area of Judaism. Uh, I'm writing nonfiction books on, on Jewish thought and Jewish tradition. They also wrote a book on one of my obsessions, which is uh, genealogy research. I've been tracing my family history in genealogy uh, since I'm in my 20s. And I'm that's 50 years ago. So uh, I wrote a book called From Generation to Generation How to Trace Your Jewish Genealogy and Personal History. Uh, And uh, in the Jewish world, in any event, uh, I'm happy to report it's a a bestseller. Uh, It's been in print for many years and It's considered to be the definitive guidebook for Jews who want to trace their family history. Uh, Another uh, passion of mine, which uh, actually does have something to do with my Jewish interests, is that I occasionally perform as a magician. I uh, got my first magic trip when I was in the third grade, and I haven't stopped since then. When I get opportunities from time to time to perform a show, the name of my show is Searching for God in a Magic Shop, uh, where I talk about theology and at the same time do a couple of very cool magic tricks. Um, I'm married, I have um, three children, and I have six grandchildren. Um, and um, that, in a nutshell, is a little bit about me.
1: Yeah. I have 18 questions for you just based on what you said. I, w- I, w- I want to talk about magic. I want to talk about genealogy. Um, and by the way, you're going to have questions for Rabbi Kurzweil, okay? And there's not a stupid question. There actually may be a stupid question, but it's okay. We'll forgive you if it's a stupid question. <laughs> Ask it anyhow, because I realize, I mean, we're, we met in 2014, it was the summer of 2014. And I remember the night I met you, I'm like, what's a rabbi do? Like, you're, you're a rabbi. What's a, do you remember that night, the night we met? I
2: remember, I remember it very well. It was a great night.
1: Yeah. What, uh, what's your recollection of that night?
2: My recollection of it is that I met you and uh, we, we instantly decided that we liked each other. Um, I think the thing that... Uh, Impressed me most about you is not only your openness, but the fact that uh, that God is at the center of your life. Uh, God is also at the center of my life, and uh, I have more in common with with uh, Christians who believe in God than I do in Jews who don't. Uh, so uh, I met you, and I realized that I met a kindred spirit. Uh, we both have lots of questions. We both pursue those questions. Vigorously, and uh, we hit it off immediately. We had a long conversation and then a second long conversation. Uh, at a certain point, we decided that we we're going to continue the conversation when we each got home. So we've been talking on the phone now once a week for a good long period of time. So uh, my recollection of that night was that I met, met a cool guy who I could talk to about big. I don't like small talk, I like big talk. Yeah, I like. And uh, I realized that uh, you're somebody who I could have big talk with. So that's my recollection. How about you?
1: Yeah, I remember the first thing you asked me was, uh, so you're a Pentecostal. I said, yeah, you said, um, how about the snakes or something like that? And I said, no, we're not snake uh, handling Pentecostals, but we, uh, you and I actually are both Pentecostal in our own way because we met during the Feast of Pentecost. And so you read Pentecost through the story of the giving of Torah at Mount Sinai. Of course, we receive Torah every day, as you've taught me. But the Torah was given at Mount Sinai as, as a wedding ring uh, would be given of sorts. It was the sign of the covenant. Uh, and I was viewing Pentecost through the lens of the upper room, so you had a mountain view and I had an upper room view and I think that we saw something in common somewhere in the middle and I just remember having lots of questions for you when I realized Christians didn't invent Pentecost. And I think that's been one of the things over the years that I've so appreciated about you is I'm, I'm continually seeing that we have more in common than the different, they're, they're, we have more that we share in common than what separates us. So Jesus, after all, uh, was a Jew. Uh, he was a rabbi, and um, so he you stand in the same tradition that he stood in and While we disagree about a lot of things, we, we seem to find that the thing up underneath the thing is this shared desire to ask big questions to seek God, and you've become um, you 've become just such a friend and um, and a mentor and, and a spiritual guide to me, I would say in so many ways. Um, I, I want to ask you, because you've not only written the books you've written, you, you, know, you wrote the book on genealogy, which as you said is, is the definitive book on genealogy. Um, this is going to seem like an obvious question given our backstory, but, but why would you want to write a book on genealogy?
2: Well, um... For some reason, I I had a curiosity about my family history. Uh, One thing I knew about the family history is that many, many, many people in my family were murdered during the Second World War, during the Holocaust. And I felt an obligation to find out the names of those people. You know, when the Nazis rounded us up, they took away our names and gave us numbers. And what I wanted to do was take away the numbers and, and give them back their names. So at the time, there were very few people who I could find who were doing any genealogical research on Jewish families? So I started discovering sources of my own, and slowly but surely I, I accumulated a vast amount of specifically Jewish information that would help an individual Jew to do genealogy research. So I wrote the book that I wish I had I found before I wrote it, uh, with the hope that it would help other people who had the same curiosity that I do. I I, um, I Sincerely believe that in order to figure out where you're going, you have to figure out where you come from. So uh, genealogy for me, it was a way to figure out where I came from. And uh, it was a a launching pad to the future for me.
1: Mm. How many generations back can you go in your personal family's genealogy?
2: Well, my father's side of the family, I can trace back to the uh, early 1700s. To my mother's side of the family, I can trace back to the 1500s. So I don't know how many generations that is, but uh, going back to the 1500s, it's quite a few, uh, quite a few uh, generations. And as I said a moment ago, uh, for example, in my father's family, I have the names, and in some cases, I have more information about 103 people in the family who were murdered. There's 103 people who were who were killed during the Holocaust. And uh, I'm happy to say at least that um, I remember those people and I remember them as individuals. Mm.
1: So that leads me into a question about your most recent book that you're working on right now. It hasn't been published yet. Um, But the persistence of memory. And that takes you back into the story of your grandfather and the Ukrainian village. Um, Tell us about... Tell us about why you're writing that book and, and what that book is about, because I, I, think, it's, I think it's not just a fascinating, uh, that may not be the right word, it's, it's, a, it's a compelling story. But it also um, is a story that I find interesting because of the context itself and uh, the people with whom you're doing the work over in the Ukraine. So if you don't mind sharing with us a little bit about that.
2: No, not at all, thanks for asking. Um, For one thing, uh, my father was born in Ukraine. At the time when when he was born, it was Poland. But after the Second World War, the um, borders changed as they did earlier also. My grandfather was born there when it was Austria. So first it was Austria, then it was Poland, now it's Ukraine. And uh, they always had an interest, for one reason or another, to visit that town. Uh, My father had told me lots and lots of stories when I was a kid about, about the town where he was brought up in. Uh, they were all fascinating stories, <clears throat> so much so that I could even picture, this, picture the town. Uh, so in, in the 1970s, when it was still part of the Soviet Union, I made my first attempt to visit that town. I just wanted to see it. I wanted to put the reality to all the stories that I had heard and the Soviet government told me that they would not give me permission to go to that town unless I first went to the largest city that was near that town. And once I got to that largest city, I could then apply for permission. So the largest city was Lviv. And uh, those of us who are following the horrible news in Ukraine uh, might be familiar with Lviv as one of the places that uh, the bombs have dropped. Uh, So I went to Lviv. I got a three-day visa. I went to the office that gives permission to go other places. And I filled out the form to get permission. And the man behind the counter said, please come back in two hours. So I walked around the town a little bit. I came back two hours later. and I went up to his, to his office and uh, he looked at me and he said, please come back in two hours. So I went outside and now, I'm, now it's four hours. And I came back after those two hours and I um, said to the man, so um, what's the verdict then? He said to me, please come back in two hours. So now, I'm, now it's six hours. Now, when I was walking around the town, I happened to notice that there was a woman who wherever I was, she was there. I went to the marketplace and this woman was in the marketplace. I went to a shop and the woman was in that shop. I walked down the street, And this young woman was uh, on the same street walking down. Now, I had a feeling that she was following me. Now, I I don't have a a long history of women following me. Uh, So it was a little bit of a unique experience. But I, I went over to her and I said, excuse me, are you following me? And she said, yes, I am. And I asked her why. And she said, well, that's my job. So I didn't know exactly what she meant by that, but she kept on following me until I went back into the office And I went over to the man who had my application for permission to get to my father's town. And he said to me, please sit down over there. And I sat down on a uh, chair, and I waited for a little while. And then he called me up, and he said to me, permission denied. So after six hours of of, of wasting my time, and then coming back to his office for the fourth time, uh, he, he said permission denied. I said, why? He said, permission denied. And that's all he would tell me. So I walked away rather disappointed that uh, I wasn't able to get to the town when my father was born. Excuse me. So I, I, um, I went home and the years went by and then uh, about five years ago, I decided to go back and see, and see the town. Now it was part of Ukraine. I did not have to get special permission to go to the town. All I had to do was go to the uh, to the town, drive there, or however I got could get there, and visit the town. So I, um, before I went, I wrote a letter to the mayor of the town. I didn't know what his name was, but I knew that there was a mayor of the town. So I I wrote a special delivery letter addressed to the mayor of the town. The name of the town is Dobremil. So I wrote a letter to the mayor the mayor of Dobremil, and I in the letter I explained to him that uh, my father was born in the town where he's mayor and that many of my family were, were born in that town and many of the people in my family were murdered during the Holocaust and that I've always had a great desire to uh, see the town. So um, I told him the dates that I would be there and asked him whether or not he uh, would be there and could I meet him. Um, I also included in the letter uh, an, a, a con- an idea. I said to him, Who knows when we meet maybe we could do something together. So I finally got to the town. I had an appointment. I had a letter back from him with an appointment on that certain day at a certain time to go to the city hall and to meet him and I met with him and he was a wonderful young man. He greeted me very warmly Uh, and we sat down and after a little bit of conversation I said to him, excuse me is there a playground in this town now the town is a, very, is a poor town. It's really an impoverished town. People are more or less living subsistence. They have their vegetable gardens and they have their animals in the yard. And um, to give you an idea teach a teacher in the school in Dubber mill makes $100 a month. That's $25 a week or $5 a day to teach all day in that school. So rather low when, uh, when you think about teacher salaries which were already low, but uh, this was even lower. Um, so I said to him, is there a playground in this town? And he said, no. I said, is there a playground in any of the villages around this town? He said, no. Um, and then he got up from his chair and he walked over to his file cabinet and he brought back a file folder and in it was a plan, a play, like a blueprint for a playground. And he said to me, this is all through an interpreter, because he doesn't speak English and I don't speak Ukrainian. But he said to me, I tried to get money from the government to build a playground, but they didn't, they didn't uh, give me that money. They, they didn't accept my proposal. So I said to him, how much the, the, would the playground cost? So he, he showed me on the piece of paper uh, some figure, and it was um, oh, it was tens of thousands of Ukrainian klovniks. And I, I didn't know how that translates into American money, but I said, well, how much is this in American money? And he did a little figuring and he said to me, it's gonna cost about $15,000. So I said to him, I reached out my hand to shake his hand and I said to him, please build the playground, I'll pay for it. So he went ahead and he he built the playground and I paid for it and uh, we had a, uh, an opening day where I came back to the town another time, um, and uh, we had a, a big celebration. And one of the things that I paid for was a, a security camera, which is connected to a building right next to the playground. So that what I'm able to do is I'm able to go online every morning and actually watch the playground live. So I, I see lots of children every day playing in the playground, and it gives me a, a real warm feeling to know that I had something to do with the, the lives of these children. Uh, so that's more or less an introduction to, uh, to my relationship to my father's town. I have been back there eight times, uh, so I uh, have lots to talk about about this particular town. But the, surprise, the unfortunate, surprising thing is that I, I didn't anticipate that Ukraine would become a headline, uh, the headlines uh, like, like, it, like it is today. So um, now I know, and I have lots of friends in that town, and they're all terrified. They don't know when the next bomb is going to hit, and they don't know when the the next soldier is going to be killed. Um, But uh, I keep in touch with them, and I try to give them moral support. And uh, about a month and a half ago, I sent out a letter to everybody who I knew and told them that I wanted to see if they could contribute something some money so that I can send it to that town, because it ends up that the town has 2,000 refugees, 2,000 people from eastern Ukraine who fled to the west and came to this town. So there were 2,000 people who were sleeping on floors and sleeping uh, in offices, sometimes sleeping in people's homes. And when I learned that when they got on the trains to go west to get away from the action they realized that their suitcases took up too much room and there wasn't enough room for people. So they all threw out their suitcases and they all came to, uh, to this town with nothing. No clothes, no food, no medicine, nothing. So I'm happy to report that I was able to raise $25,000, which I gave to the mayor, and uh, people come and express their needs, and he's able to, uh, to help these people.
1: It's beautiful. And, and this Ukrainian uh, village, is this, what's, what's primarily the, the religious makeup of that community?
2: Uh, the, the, there, are, there are no Jews in the town, first of all. Before the Holocaust, before the Second World War, there were 5,000 people in the town and about half of them, 2,500 of them, were Jews. Uh, the Jewish community was destroyed um, so um, right now, they—they're all of the people are Christians. Some of them are uh, Russian Orthodox. Um, some of them are some other denominations. Um, but it's a—it's more or less a Christian town. All the classrooms in the school have a Christian uh, iconography and, and pictures. In the mayor's office, the same. There's uh, statues around. There's a an amazingly uh, powerful statue of Jesus that's right on the outskirts of the town. Uh, so it's a, it's a Jewish town. It's a Christian town, I should say. I said Jewish because I wanted to say that these people have been so warm to me and so welcoming to me. And I really have had the sense that they want to change my impression of who they are. That before the war and during the war, the Ukrainians uh, by and large weren't too friendly with the Jews. Um, and it's a horrible history. And I think uh, that they've sincerely wanted to change that impression, and they've done that. Uh, so the, these people are, uh, are beautiful people. The children are particularly beautiful children. I've been into the school a couple of times, a bunch of times, and met with the children. And they're, um, they know that I'm Jewish, and I know that they're not Jewish, that they're Christian. And uh, we, we know, don't talk about the Holocaust, but um, I try to teach them some English, I performed some magic tricks for them and uh, the children and I really fell in love with each other.
1: What was it like for you going into that village for the the first time, you know, most recently and you're seeing you're seeing all the Christian iconography, you're seeing a uh, you know, statue of Jesus as you move into the town. It, what's what's that feel like as as a man of Jewish faith walking into that community?
2: Well, I I, of course, was very conscious of the fact that the Jewish population in the town was absent, that they were decimated. Of the 2,500 Jews before the war, only five Jews, I'm sorry, 25 Jews survived, somehow or other, uh, and then they ultimately left also. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a man of faith, and I have my faith, and these people have their faith, and I respect them for it. I... I um, I, you know, I, I think it's a good principle to treat people like you want to be treated. Yeah. So, um, doing to others is, a, is the great principle. So I, I was just open to them and uh, spoke to them frankly. Um, but but I, you know, of course, knew in the back of my mind that at one point this town was bustling and with, with, with Jews, including my father and my grandparents and my great grandparents and cousins and uncles and aunts. Um, and uh, that that, that has, has all changed, but it, it, it didn't change my uh, feeling that I wanted to befriend these people. Um, th- there are many people who have prejudices against them, and I don't want to be. I don't want to inherit that. I don't. I don't know what these children. These children. I don't know what their grandparents or great grandparents did during the war, uh, but I, I know that the sins of the fathers do not go down to the children and grandchildren. And these are innocent children. And I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt. I wanted to see them as a clean slate. I wanted to see them um, as friends, as as neighbors. If the Holocaust hadn't happened, these people would have been my neighbors. So I, I uh, very much wanted to treat them as though they were my neighbors. And it worked. We became great friends with each other.
1: Mm. You and I have talked at length about you know the idea of neighborliness, and maybe we'll... Maybe we'll get to that in in a little bit. I I remember you telling me one time that there was a a three times life-size version statue of Jesus on the way in with a cross. Yes. And that made an impression on you that struck me as well. Do you mind sharing that?
2: Sure, it's a little bit emotional for me. But there's this super life-size, not life-size, but bigger than life-size statue on the outskirts of town, of Jesus carrying the, his, the cross and had, with a crown of thorns on his head, and um, I don't know, uh, somebody might, somebody else might pass by that statue and see it as a Christian statue. I, I saw it as a Holocaust memorial. I saw it as one more Jew who was being tortured to death, and uh, it it, uh, it was just very powerful to me because as you mentioned before, Jesus was a Jew. And here, here is a statue of, uh, of, of Jesus um, with that uh, terrible crown of thorns and that ultra-heavy cross that he was dragging. And uh, it was a, a, a statue of a, of a suffering Jew. And I knew from, from the history of the town that uh, there were lots of suffering Jews. So I decided, when I looked at it, to see it as a Holocaust memorial a memory to, to Jews of, of all times and all ages who, who were murdered by, by hostile people.
1: And then you built the playground as you, as you develop a relationship with the mayor in a Christian community. You know, I would have the question, why have the Christians not built a playground? Um, given Jesus's affinity for children, which is an affinity that I know that you share, given the work that you do around the world, you built it in a, in a place where people tried to discourage you at first. you mind sharing that story right. with us?
2: That's right. The, um, one person who I told about my plans to build this playground, somebody in the United States uh, said to me, where are they building the playground? And I said, I don't know. Uh, why? She said, well, it's important that you don't build it on the left side of the, of the town hall. Build it on the right side of town hall. And I said to her, I, I can't tell the mayor where to put the playground. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to sponsor it, but it's not my job to tell them what it should look like or where it should be. This was a gift. That, and, and once I give the gift, it's up to them. And this woman emphatically said, don't, do, don't build it on the left, build it on the right uh, of, the, of, the, of the town hall. So I finally said to her, why are you insisting that I tell them to build it on the left? And she said, "Well, because 200 Jews were rounded up on that spot, and they were all they were all shot to death. <clears throat> so you shouldn't put the playground on that spot." Well, when she told me this, I confessed that I thought to myself, I didn't tell this to her, but I, I I confessed that I thought to myself, "Well, now that I know what happened on that spot, this is a perfect spot to put a playground. It's a it's a place where." A little bit of children's laughter could, could do that earth some good. That uh, this is, you know, she said to me, "the uh, th- this earth is so- soaked with Jewish blood," and I said, "well, I said to myself, well, that's a good reason for me to uh, to try to change the, the vibes of that place a little bit." And uh, you know, if we were to build a monument, every place in, in Ukraine. Where Jews were killed, the place would be swimming with monuments, because, you know millions of people were killed. So you know I, I thought that building something to life rather than commemorating death would be a, a good thing. Now I, I want to mention something else if I could, which is that when I got to the town the first time, I found that there was a house in the town that was once a house occupied by Jew, occupied by Jews. Which the Gestapo took over when they entered the town, and what they did is they made the Jews dig up the gravestones that were in the Jewish cemetery, and to bring them to the house where the Gestapo made their headquarters, and they used these Jewish tombstones as the the, the surface of a of a sidewalk, so that for the last seventy years people have been trampling on that that sidewalk that were originally. Um, gravestones from the, from the Jewish community. So I was one of a few people who got together and <clears throat> arranged to have this sidewalk dug up, bring the stones back to the land that used to be the Jewish cemetery. And they built a, monument, a memorial made out of gravestones. It's very, very dramatic. Very, very, there were 110 gravestones that we found and we put them all together into one massive memorial. <clears throat> and this memorial is actually on the tallest hill in the town. So just about anywhere where you stand in the town, you can look up to the top of the hill on the outskirts of town and see this huge memorial to these people whose graves were desecrated. So <clears throat> I figured we already have a Holocaust memorial in that town. Let's build a playground. Oh, and, and well let's try to... change change the karma of that of that place
1: you know it feels like we have lots of memorials it seems like you built an altar and what i mean by that i think you know what i mean by that but that's that was an offering i think from you to the almighty to say um you know in the christian tradition we have we have this saying that's become a song you know based on the the execution and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, we we say that that God turns graves into gardens because Jesus uh, rose in a in a garden and Mary Magdalene, whenever she saw Jesus, she didn't recognize him. She thought he was the gardener, and it's a it's an echo to the Garden of Eden that that there is this this invitation in the person and the life of Jesus to encounter God now as the first couple encountered God in the beginning, a a reset, if you will, a a fresh invitation, a fresh start. And I think that what you did is you you offered something that I think Jesus would have offered to people. You offered them forgiveness. You offered them reconciliation. You offered them a garden in the place of a graveyard. And that to me, that to me reminds me an awful lot of Jesus. Um, and, I, and you and I have always been honest about Jesus. Um, for the sake of my friends here, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on what you find really compelling about Jesus and what you struggle with related to Christianity or Christians.
2: Well, that's a, that's a big question, but I'll, I'll try to, to do justice to it. I mean, in terms of my um, my personal view of, uh, of Jesus, I, I, I can say that I read the New Testament, and I can um, openly and honestly say that um, Jesus was a great rabbi. Um, I think there are many people in the Jewish community who overlook that fact. Um, uh, he was a great inspiration uh, from the Sermon on the Mount to, to uh, all the parables and everything else that's contained in there um, this is a, a, an individual whose teachings uh, need to spread throughout the world um, the, so I, I, um, I mean, I'm able to, uh, to view the New Testament and, and, the, and, and Jesus in, in that light the, the thing that gets in the way uh, for me, not f- towards Jesus as an individual, but we have a teaching, a firm teaching, and a, a huge teaching in Jewish tradition that we never make an image, we never make a concrete image of God, that we, that God is unknowable, that God is unimaginable, that God is beyond anything that we can conceive of in principle, anything He's beyond infinite. Uh, infinite is still finite because it's a concept that God is unknowable in, in, in any way whatsoever. Um, so we, you know, we also have teaching in, in Judaism of, of um, how to recognize the Messiah when when the Messiah comes. And uh, from my understanding, uh, Jesus did not fulfill the requirements that Jewish tradition has for, for um, recognizing the Messiah. Uh, so that, that's a stumbling block for me. Mm-hmm. But uh, fortunately, I, I'm able to overlook that and to, uh, and to absorb some of the teachings of, of Jesus. And I know that, um, how profoundly nourishing they are.
1: Well, here we go. So let's do what we do. Are you ready?
2: I'm ready. All right.
1: <laughs> we never make an image, and yet God created humankind in his image and in his likeness. How do you think about the, the and it may not be attention, how do you think about not creating an image of God and yet God creating an image of himself?
2: Well, um, I, I think that the answer to that is that the human image is, um, when we say that, 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 that man was made in God's image, um, we we don't mean the physical the image of him. We 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 think that God's image is is the concept of free will. That that uh, as human beings we have free will in principle. That we have free choice on on everything. That we can't we can't blame things on others. We can't blame things on the environment we grew up in, and we can't blame things on our parents. We can't blame things on our friends, um, and we cannot. Blame things on our economic level. Um, that we have free will. And it's in that sense that Jewish theology says that God, that man is made in in God's image, uh, uh, not not the human the human form. Uh, uh, we're we're not permitted to make an image of the human form. We're not not permitted to make a sculpture with of a human being. Uh, if you went to Israel, you might notice. That throughout the country, there are statues, but there's always something that's that's in error on the statue, either either a chicken in the nose of the statue or something to not make it a complete image that we we have a an aversion to concretizing God in any way so this this is uh, this is how, how we view it so that um, that Jesus becomes a a stumbling block rather than a vehicle. Uh, I don't mean that with any disrespect, uh, I, I, but um, you know, according to our theology, it's of cru- crucial importance to make sure that we don't have an image of God in, in, in any way, not, and, and the human form was God making that image, uh, not humans making that image.
1: Well, that's an interesting take on it. So then... So then in the Christian tradition, we have the teaching, as, as you may know, that in, in the beginning was the word, the, the logos, the, the governing or mediating principle of the universe, and that, that essence took up residence in the person of Jesus that then came to reveal to us um, what God is like, you know. The book of Hebrews would go so far as to say that the, He's the exact imprint of of who God is. He's the representation um, of, of God. So if we want to know what God is like, if we ever get confused, we we look at Jesus. Um, I'm curious when when the Messiah comes for the first time and the only time for Jews, as you say what will the Messiah be
2: like? Well, the Messiah is said to, to be the, the, the second wisest person that was ever born, the first one being Moses. Uh, the Messiah, in Jewish view, is a human being, is an extraordinary leader who's able to inspire people like no one else has ever been able to in, inspire people. Uh, the uh, Messiah is somebody who will be able to lead the, the world to a peaceful place where, um, where uh, the, the, the lion and the lamb will lie down together, that there won't, that uh, symbolically, there won't be war anymore, there won't be hostility, it'll be a, a new level of consciousness that will happen because of, of his teachings. Um, so, you know, given that as our, our view, we, ha- we, ha- we have to say that it doesn't seem like things have changed since Jesus uh, appeared. It seems like it's the same world that it was before Jesus appeared. He it doesn't, it doesn't fulfill the requirements that Jewish tradition dictates that we, we have. Um, by the way, uh, uh, one of the teachings is that the Messiah doesn't have to do any, give any signs or wonders, no magic tricks from the, from the Messiah. He's just an extraordinary messenger of God, an extraordinary teacher who will transform the consciousness of the world. Mm-hmm.
1: But he could do miracles.
2: Well, um, you know, uh, we, we have uh, um, a lot of skepticism when it comes to miracles. You know, as as a magician, uh, I, I would say that many times when I've performed, people will come a- over to me after the... Uh, the presentation and will say, you, you read my mind, how did you read my mind? And I would say, no, it's only a trick, it's a magic trick. And the person would say to me, oh no, it's not a magic trick, you actually read my mind. And uh, other than telling them how I did it, which I can't do, um, I, I, can't, I cannot convince them that it was only a magic trick. Uh, <clears throat> you know, there, there are lots of people who can do lots of magic tricks um, and they're, they're breathtaking. You wonder, how is, it, how is it possible for them to do it? But when you learn some of the methods, you see that you can, the, the danger is that you can pull things over people's eyes. You pull the wool over people's eyes. And according to Jewish law, um, which has something to say about just about everything in the world, Jewish law says that if you want to be a magician doing magic tricks, you have one obligation to your audience, and that is to tell them sometime during your presentation, that you have no special powers,
1: mm-hmm.
2: that these are all tricks. Yeah, Because you don't want to lead people astray. And, you, and uh, like I said, uh, people have uh, been convinced that I have special powers, but believe me, I, I don't have any special powers. Yeah. I just know how to do some cool magic tricks. Yeah.
1: You know, I've, I heard a quote um, attributed to Albert Einstein, and I, I don't remember it precisely, although the, the essence of it was you either believe that... Um, the whole thing is a miracle or you don't believe in miracles at all. And I I recall Rabbi Steinsalz um, that your your rabbi, and we, we should talk about him at some point, that he was saying, you know, for some people, you know, seeing dancing angels up on, you know, up in the sky or up on some edifice, that wouldn't be enough to convince, you know, some people at all if they're not already looking Already looking for miracles. Talk to us about miracles through that lens, if you don't mind.
2: Um, like I said, we're, you know, we're, we, we are taught to be skeptical about things that look like miracles. Um, we, uh, you know, I, I would agree with Einstein. Uh, far be it from me to say I agree with Einstein, but I, but I, I agree with him that, through a certain perspective, everything is a miracle. Uh, the, the the sun coming up every morning is a miracle. Uh, the rain coming down is a miracle. Flowers are a miracle. Babies are a miracle. Uh, human love is a miracle. They're, they're, um, everything happens. Not, nothing, I should say, a negative. Nothing happens without God allowing it to happen. Mm-hmm. So um, everything is from God, and everything, therefore, is a miracle. Um, I wanted to say something <clears throat> about the, my magic show that I think uh, is important to, to, to bring out. Um, there's a saying in, in Jewish tradition, it's actually in Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus spoke, of course. Um, there is a saying in Aramaic, which is, I'll say it in Aramaic, it's Latova, which means everything is for the best. Mm-hmm. And in some way we're supposed to feel that everything is for the best, that God knows what he's doing. And even though I might see something that doesn't look like it's for the best, I don't know what the outcome is. I don't know what the fate is of of that particular person or situation. Uh, Now, you don't say it to other people who are suffering. Mm -hmm. I don't go over to somebody who's suffering and say, well, you know, everything's for the best. Uh, My obligation to someone who is suffering is to try to help relieve their suffering. Mm -hmm. But in my own heart of hearts, I, I, I try to adopt that teaching that everything is for the best. Now, the connection that that has to my magic shows is that every magic trick works the same way. Whether it's a small trick that I do one-on-one with a person or it's a big illusion that is performed on a Las Vegas stage, every trick, large or small, is all, all done in the same way. And how is it done? The audience does not see everything. If the audience were to see everything, he or she would see, obviously, how the trick is done. But we don't... You don't... The magician doesn't show everything. He hides some things. And this is the way of the world. We humans don't see everything. We only have a narrow, narrow sliver of an of a observation of what's going on. And because we are, our perception is so limited, because we're such small beings with, with such a limited ability to see the whole picture, we, we are able to say everything is for the best. Because God knows what he's doing. And... Um, <clears throat> And I, I, I don't, but I have, uh, I have the faith to, f- to believe that, 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 that God is, is the, uh, the ruler of the universe and nothing happens without God allowing it to happen. So the magic tricks, in a sense, are a metaphor. And in the same way that you don't see what everything the magician does, we don't see everything that God does. And, uh, and we are able to, to have faith that God knows what he's doing
1: and this is a recurring theme in our, in, in our conversations, the, the problem of suffering, the, the problem of evil. Is it God allowing evil to happen in the world? Is it God causing the things that happen that we view as harmful or evil? And I I think that's that's a conversation we... That one, I think, would take us all night to even uh, scratch the surface in. But I, we, we we keep coming back to, you know, the thing behind the thing, although we disagree on some of the points of the thing behind the thing, is trust. That we, we, we have to get to a place in our lives, if we're ever going to have any peace, to where we trust. What is... You know, especially in the the more Pentecostal or charismatic, to use that word, traditions of the Christian faith, faith is a big deal. Like having faith for healing or having faith for this or having faith for that. But I've often picked up, not to diminish faith, that trust is is maybe a a deeper invitation still. What, What do you think about faith and trust and What's the difference, if any?
2: Yeah, I I agree with you. You There, you know, in Jewish tradition, there are two separate concepts: Uh, faith is faith, but but trust is a term called bitachon, uh, bitachon, which is developing trust in God. And even though you might see things differently, you have to you have to, in some inexplicable way, integrate into your being that that you that you trust God. No. It's a paradox. What we were talking about, it's a paradox. And uh, at least in Jewish tradition, we're not afraid of paradoxes. On the contrary, uh, when you encounter a paradox, it's usually a sign that you're going in the right direction. So on the one hand, we're given absolute free will. On the other hand, as one of our great Jewish teachers taught, a blade of grass doesn't move without God moving that blade of grass. God is in control of everything, and yet we have free will. And somewhere within that paradox is our situation. Mm-hmm. We may not have free will, but we act as though we do. Um, and, uh, and, it's, and God uh, judges us by our choices and by our actions.
1: I remember one time you said that everything is foreseen and yet free will is given. Do I have that about right?
2: Yes, yes that's um, one of the great rabbis, uh, Rabbi Akiva, who is known to have said that all is foreseen and free will is given. And that's the, an expression of the paradox. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, our, in our liturgy, we have a phrase, our father, our king. And we say over and over, our father, our king. <clears throat> so the logical question is, well, which is it? Is God my father or God my, my, the king? You know, the, the, my father, I know my father. I sit on his lap. I touch his cheek. I, I kiss him. I know my father. The king, Chances are likely that you never see the king. Maybe once in a lifetime you glimpse the king. So is God my father or my king? And in the liturgy we say, our father, our king, my father, our king, our father, our king. Because he is infinitely distant and infinitely near. And again, somewhere in that paradox,
1: hmm. we have to
2: function in our lives.
1: Hmm. You know, we, and I don't know I want to say that I don't know how comfortable many Christians that I know are with paradox, but honestly, I don't know too many people, period, who are that comfortable uh, with paradox, and I think that filters into the way that we read scripture. So, oftentimes, I've encountered people that they want to know what what the correct translation is of a scripture, or the correct interpretation is rather of a scripture, but I. I haven't found that to be my experience as you and I have read and studied scripture. It doesn't seem like you're looking for like the definitive right, right interpretation or, or right answer.
2: Yeah, because, because we view the Torah as a, as a creation of God, um, it has an infinite number of meanings. There are, there are levels upon levels upon levels of, of meaning to the teachings in our, in our Torah, from the most literal to the most abstract. And it not that one is right and that one is wrong. Uh, certainly somebody can be misguided and go completely in a, in a strange direction. but uh, in Jewish tradition, we, we have lots of debates, lots of struggle, particularly among the rabbis for so, you know what does this verse mean and what does that, that verse mean? We, we are not afraid of, ha- of having the disagreements. We're not, we're not afraid of, of looking at, uh, at a text. And seeing that, um, actually, in Jewish tradition, there are four basic levels of, of interpretation of the text. There's the literal level. What does this text say? Then there's the homiletic level. What does the text teach? And then there's the, the hint. Uh, what, what, what is hinted at in the text that it's not saying explicitly, but it's, it's hinted at? And the fourth one is it's called so, it's the secret. What, are the, what is the secret meaning of the text? Mm. The, the meaning that is not obvious and plain, but it's one that, if you have somebody who can give you an interpretation that is enlightening, the the, the secrets are are embedded within the text. Mm. So we have a, my, my impression, as you and I have spoken over the years, is that um, there's a much more fluid. Uh, relationship to the, the text in, in, in Jewish thought. We don't, we don't, we're very we very rarely quote chapter and verse uh, because, you know, you can quote chapter and verse to, to, to prove anything just about. It's, uh, we're, we're kind of suspect about, uh, about quoting chapter and verse. Um, we have a, a 62 volume work called the Talmud, 62 volumes. It's a huge compilation of teachings. Um, and um, we're have to. we very wary when somebody says, well, the Talmud says this. Because the Talmud says everything. It's so gigantic that you can find a point of view that you want to prove as, somewhere in that 62 volumes. So um, <clears throat> we struggle in life. We try to figure out what's best. We study and study and study and study and study. And, study. and then at a certain point we have to close the book we have to go out into the world, and we hope that the teachings that we've absorbed will help us to make the decisions that we have to make throughout our lives. And we do our best.
1: You know, there's a quote that comes to my mind, and I'll just say it because <clears throat> I'll get in trouble later, but Stanley Auerwas, uh, is a. you're familiar with Auerwas? I don't know if you've heard, recognized your- Auerwas, H-A-U-E-R-W-A-S.
2: I think no, it was I mean. Howard
1: I, I think he said Duke, I forget. But Howard Wasch said that any book that you know, doesn't tell you what to do with your pots and pans and spectacles and testicles isn't a book worth reading, right? And so yeah. the, <laughs> that, that my perception is, yeah, at some point you, you read the book and then you have to close the book and then you have to go out and you have to build a playground. You have to, to see the person on the street and, and, and actually meet the need. And so we, we've got about 20 minutes left. And, and I want to start with just an obvious question, if you could talk about it for a moment. Um, and, I, and then I want you to ask equally obvious questions, okay? Don't be afraid of any question. I, I want to ask you the question of, you know, you don't have a, the, the temple was destroyed in, in 7 CE, right? So... What what do what do you do now that you don't have a temple? <clears throat> that it's the, the temple as you've as you've said is the the center of the universe. It's the center of the center of the center. It's the focal point where God's presence is most intensified. That seemed to disrupt that seems to disrupt a place where one would offer tithes or where they would, you know, give tithe and then the priests carry tithe. It seems to disrupt sacrifices it seems to disrupt so much. So I, I, I wanna give you liberty to, to sort of start wherever you would want, whether that's with the temple itself, whether it's with sacrifices, what do you do now that you don't offer, these are questions that I get, and I just assume ask you so that I don't screw them up.
2: Well, you know, this, this work that I mentioned before, the Talmud, um, is, is a fascinating set of books. It has profound teachings on just about every subject you can possibly name. I've often challenged people to think of a topic and that you don't think that the Talmud speaks about. And no matter how bizarre, the Talmud speaks about it. Basically what the Talmud is, is a way that the rabbis express how they figured out, how does life go on without a temple? Mm. The temple was the center of Jewish life. Now that there is no more temple, as you point out, so many things that happened in the temple can't happen any longer uh, because the temple is not there. So the rabbis, the great sages of Jewish tradition, had to figure out what to do. So just to give one example, the example of sacrifice, we have in our, our prayer book three, three prayer sessions, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and one in the evening. And they correspond to the three Times in the temple when sacrifices were given. So our prayers now replace the sacrifices. Until one day when the temple will be rebuilt, rebuilt, and once again, uh, perhaps sacrifice will will come back. But it, there are two things. One is prayer. We have the, these three prayer sessions corresponding to the prayer to the to the sacrifice sessions in the temple, and the other is giving charity. When in Jewish tradition there's no more important action, no more important command than to give charity to the poor. This is paramount. This is, this is this, one rabbi said, if you put all of the commandments on one side of the scale and just the, the commandment of giving charity on the other side of the scale, the, the commandment of giving charity outweighs them all. So the rabbis teach that one that, that a way that we have today to replace the sacrificial system is to make sure that we give charity.
1: You know, one of um, the... I'm sorry, go ahead, please.
2: I just wanted to add that um, the requirement is to, like you said, tithe is to give a tenth of your income to charity. But there's an interesting teaching that you're not supposed to give more than 20%. And the reason is that you shouldn't put yourself at risk you give too much, you can possibly put yourself at risk and you yourself will need charity. Uh, it's, it's good enough for the wealthy people to give 10%, for poor people to give 10%, and, and, and that again becomes the replacement for the sacrificial system.
1: You know, you have perceptions uh, of Christians, and I think that Christians have perceptions of Jews. Um, and one of the i think the perceptions that I, I i don't think is always warranted is that that jews are legalistic that they're that they're seeking to earn their way to god by following the letter of the law and that hasn't been that hasn't been my experience of you number 1 but it you know when i think about when i think about the giving of torah at sinai The Torah was given because they were already saved from enslavement, not in order to earn salvation. They were already delivered and then given the Torah as an invitation to be a holy people so that the world might see the glory of God coming through them. Are you trying to, to grit it out and earn your way into favor with the Almighty or are you how, how are you looking at the works that you 're doing
2: well um, i, I don 't think about it uh, quite frankly I, I, I do what I do, and it 's because I, because I do it i, I, I don 't negotiate with god um, i, I don 't um, try to say, "Hey, look, look at what i 'm doing i 'm a good person because uh, nobody knows what 's in your heart except for God. God knows what 's in your heart, so i can I can uh, build a playground in a, in a poor town. And I could do it for ego, ego reasons. Uh, God knows what's, what's in my, my heart. And th- there's no amount of following the laws that will, uh, will secure me a place a place anywhere. I think that from, from the outside, it looks like a legalistic religion uh, far more than it is. Where we Jews are very suspicious of generalizations. For example, the generalization could be love everybody. Well, that's very nice. But uh, as you know, many people were, uh, were killed in the name of people who believed in love. So, you know, we asked the question, well, what does it mean to love somebody? What does it mean to love your neighbor? Do I love my neighbor if he's playing rock and roll music at three in the morning, full blast, every night, every night of the summer? Do I love that person? And if, if I do, how do I love that person when I really want to go into their house and, and rip their stereo from, from, from the wall? Uh, you know, so so uh, is that is that love? How, how, how do you how do you love somebody? Uh, so you know, giving charity We're supposed to give charity, but how much do we, how much do we give? What what what's an adequate amount to give? If, if the law says give charity, and I just give a penny, well, is that fulfilling my obligation? So we ask the question: why, You know, what's, what would be what would be more appropriate? Uh, and we do this with, with just about everything in life, not because we're trying to bribe God, but because we're trying to figure out what's, what's the best thing to do in any situation. You know, in the United States, we have a Supreme Court. It isn't enough for us to have a constitution. We have to have a body of people who can interpret that, the, the, that constitution and to apply it to real life. So in Jewish, in Jewish life, we're trying to do the same thing. We've received the law, we receive the Torah, it's got lots and lots of do's and don'ts in it, but it isn't so simple. We have to contemplate. We have to get find people who are wiser than us who might be able to help us to, uh, you know, to manage. I was on an airplane a couple of days ago, and the stewardess announced, as, as he or she always does, that if the, um, the gas mask falls down, that first you need to put your own mask on and then put the other person's mask on. Now, from the outside, it might look like, gee, that's selfish. Why, why, why uh, are you putting your own mask on first? Why not help the, the, the child next to you? But if you think it through for a couple of minutes, you realize that the best strategy is to put your mask on first, and then you'll be in a situation where you'll be able to help other people. So the, the law is one thing, but then the interpretation of the law um, brings it down to reality and, and helps us to figure out uh, what we're supposed to do in this world.
1: And I think that was the environment that Jesus was operating in. He was operating in an environment to where Pharisees, of whom rabbis are the modern day um, you know, bearers of that mantle, what we perceive as being a bunch of Pharisees who got wrapped around the axle and they were so meticulous on this. And they're trying to figure out how do we help people who live here with real problems, with their neighbor and their neighbor's donkey, resolve their situation so that they can be in right relationship, so that they can properly worship God as well. So I I find, although sometimes we can, in the gothic structure of everything, lose the essence of what the artist was trying to convey, um, I think that there is an invitation to actually grapple with some of these things. What, What does it mean to love my neighbor? When, when my neighbor is harming my other neighbor. What? And so I, I think that we need to grapple with and wrestle with the Torah as we know Israel is the one who wrestles with God and that's the invitation to us. I, I wonder if there might be a question out there and please don't think it's a stupid question. Yes, Tony, what's your question? are there still Sadducees and Pharisees in the Jewish tradition?
2: No, there are not. Uh, that's a, a period of our history when there were different groups and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were only two of, uh, of a number of, of, such, of such groups. But that doesn't exist any longer in Jewish life.
1: Okay, there was another question. Chris. I've met a couple years people that were Uh-huh. Messiah. Uh-huh. Okay, so the question is, he's met some Messianic Jews over time uh, who view Jesus as a Messiah, as he says, and then he said um, Isaiah 53, um, a scripture that I assume that Messianic Jews would look at and say, I see this, uh, and and Jesus fulfilling it. Um, I don't know how handy your copy of uh, the Bible is, but Isaiah 53, Do you wanna take a crack at that really quick, or you... Do you know what's going on there?
2: Yeah, uh, you know it's it's as we were saying before. one, one can quote uh, the prophets and and bring lots of different interpretations to what the the prophets are saying. Uh, you know we we have a belief in who the Messiah is, how to recognize him, and how not to recognize him, and that informs our interpretation of Isaiah. We have completely, completely different interpretations. Uh, we don't pull a, we don't pull a verse out of context and say, Look, this is what it says, so this is what it means. Um, <clears throat> anybody who's read poetry knows that what it says is never what it means um, and uh, <clears throat> it certainly goes for the torah as as well <clears throat> um, so so uh, the the um, the people who are are Jews for jesus are are um are people who are sincere in their quest for for the, for the truth. Uh, it just happens that um, we feel that they're somewhat misguided and, um, and and overlook some of the basic teachings of of how we are to recognize the Messiah when he comes.
1: And some of the earliest rabbis uh, in in the tradition would say that the Jews of Jesus' era overlooked many of the reasons that Jesus should be qualified to be the Messiah. So there, you, you, you're not going to convince the opposite you know, viewpoint because there's always another way to look at the thing. So what you and I have done, I think, for the last seven years now is to say, okay, we disagree about that. Um, but what's the thing behind the thing? What's the thing up underneath the thing? And can we still seek God together even though we disagree on uh, the messianic nature of Jesus. We actually don't talk about that a lot, really. We've talked about it more tonight than I think that we've ever really talked about it, uh, but I knew that you would be interested in it anyhow, so we kind of brought it up. So there was- Well, a- I, think
2: that one, I think that one of the things that we have spoken about is those two principles that really are, are bigger than everything. One, one is love your neighbor as yourself, yeah. and the other is do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Yeah. Um, those two sayings are teachings that the great Jewish sages have said are the essence of the Torah. Yeah, those are the that's the essence of the Torah. Yeah, I, I like to quote Elie Wiesel, who was, of course, one of the Nobel Peace Prize winners Elie Wiesel once said, uh, "I wish that Christians would become better Christians and that Jews would become better Jews." <laughs>
1: What Jesus was trying to get Christians to do, although he didn't know any Christians, um, what Jesus was trying to get his disciples to do was to fulfill the heart of the law. And there was no Jew in Jesus's time that would have objected to any person loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving their neighbor as themselves. So what, uh, there was another question right here. yeah. She says, thank you for being here, and she's nervous. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, I became a Christian in 1992, and- Do all Jews go to heaven? <clears throat> is that the question? Oh, yes. Do, Do all, all Jews, Jews automatically go to heaven? Go to
2: heaven? No. <laughs> there, uh, I, could, I could just end with that, but uh, I, I suppose you want a little bit more than just that. Um, there are people who are totally evil, and the Jewish teaching is that those people who are totally evil, and there are only a few people in the world who are totally evil, even people who you see as evil, they they do some good in the world. And uh, the person who is totally evil, that person's soul is cut off at the root and is and is distinguished, extinguished. Excuse me, is extinguished. Um, but uh, otherwise, we believe that once you die, you, you um, if you uh, haven't done everything that you're supposed to do, that you're reincarnated in the body of another person and and again have to uh, try to do what was your your job to do, and ultimately, uh, the game is fixed, and everybody gets in.
1: So with four minutes left, you just dropped a bomb in the room. (laughs) Like, you just believe in reincarnation, you just don't go around advertising it, right? And here you go, (laughs) you just brought it out here for us. Well, it seems like we'll have to have you back. Um, It's, so... So you have reincarnation, which creates a lot of problems theologically for Christians because we don't believe in that. We believe in resurrection. We believe that uh, we're kind of YOLO people. Uh, You only live once except the resurrection, which you also believe in a resurrection at the end of days. But the Jews would believe that if you haven't completed your assignment, then you're going to come back in the body of another person until you've completed your assignment. And then... Then, uh, then you've done your work and you're fit, which, although creates problems theologically for Christians, solves problems theologically whenever it comes to, well, what about babies that only live for a few hours? Or what about babies that were... Well, that soul only had a brief amount of work to do. So it, it's... And that would not be a Christian theological, you know, b- belief. We disagree on that. and It's okay. Uh, but that's... You ask the question, and you got a Jewish answer. And so... Uh, and he, he's a rabbi and uh, wrote the book on Torah for Dummies. So there you go. He literally wrote the book, Torah for Dummies.
0: Um, did I also hear, uh, that was the first time I've heard that, uh, a non-belief in hell and that there's just annihilation.
1: He actually does believe in hell uh, and Jews believe in hell. It would, uh, it would be what is hell, who is it for, and what is its work? And I think that's a topic that in 60 seconds we don't have time to go into tonight. Uh, but my, what, my, math,
2: my math class in junior high school was hell.
1: Uh. <laughs> Listen, I sat through three meetings this week. <laughs> Anyhow, um, <laughs> jokes only. Uh, let's do one final question that doesn't involve hell, reincarnation, or converting Rabbi Kurzweil. <laughs> yes, June. June, come on up here. Just come on up. Let's do this. No, no, no. You just need to come on up. This is, she just, she's starting to talk about memories. And I just think this is one for you. So yeah, I want you to hear it. Come right over here. You have to get, no, nope, right. No, You're fine. Come right here. Yeah, you're good. You're good. All right. This is June. Hi. Hi,
0: June.
2: So you talked about the importance of memories and and it
0: kind of goes along with traditions and, and memories. But I think that Christianity often downplays that. We don't have our traditions
2: like the Jewish has their feasts and stuff. Can you just explain a little bit about the importance of memories? I just think, I think for us, particularly in charismatic groups, we're always looking for the next new thing, moving forward, pressing forward toward God. But I think we've lost, we, we lose our history our memories. Can you maybe explain what your thoughts were about that? Beautiful. Yeah, thank, thanks for the question. Uh, um, yeah, um, Judaism is very much about memory. Um, uh, we, we, uh, m- many of our holidays are holidays that are, are based on historical events. Um, we believe there's a lot to learn from history, that, uh, that the, only, the only creatures in the world that really have memory are humans. I mean, yet yeah, you can train animals to do things, but uh, but they don't really have memories, that they're not sitting around thinking about what happened yesterday and what happened the day before yesterday. They're just taught to to respond to cues. Um, it's it's memory that makes us human. Uh, we we have to learn from our our, our memories. Uh, we have to commemorate those who came before us. We have to honor those who came before us. Um, we're we're. In Judaism, we're we're past-oriented and we're present-oriented. We don't think about the future too much. It's what are you doing in the present, and what are you building? What are you building on from the past? Uh, that the uh, if you if you worry about what you're going to do in the present, that's going to take care of your future. Uh, we're not we're not so goal-oriented. Despite the question before about um, bribing God. Uh, we're, not, we're not in Jewish tradition. We're not so goal-oriented. We're, we we uh, we know that important things came before us. We know that the Exodus from Egypt, for example, is something that we have in our prayers every single day, a few times a, a few times a day. What does it mean to to uh, be freed from Egypt? The word Egypt in in, uh, in Hebrew is Mitzrayim, and the word Mitzrayim. Not only means Egypt, but the word itself means a narrow place, a narrow place. So every day, a few times a day, we remind ourselves of the Exodus from Egypt, because we have to remind ourselves to not get stuck in our narrow places, uh, to, to be expansive, to be loving in an, in an expansive kind of way. That the, uh, the worst thing is Egypt. The worst thing is Mitzrayim. The worst thing is being stuck. in a a narrow place.
1: I can't tell you how many Tuesdays at 3.15 Central Time that I've picked up the phone and your number dial it and you say hello and by the time the hour is done I feel like I've left a narrow place and entered something like a place of promise. And I wanna, in front of my friends, just express my gratitude because I feel like I've grown as a Christian because of my rabbi. And I've learned more about how to follow Jesus because of you. And I, um, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for our friendship. And I, I think we should do this again because I wanna talk about neighborliness. I wanna talk about who is my neighbor. I wanna talk about how to love my neighbor I feel like we've only scratched the surface and, you know, I feel that way every Tuesday anyhow when we hang up the phone. I love you and I appreciate you.
2: I love you too. Thank I'm you so much. I'm very grateful for this evening and grateful for your friendship. Indeed. It uh, means the world to me.
1: Likewise, my friend. God bless you. Have a good night. Good night.
2: Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you want more information about Generations United Church, head on over to genuchurch.com. Feel free to follow us on all of our social media platforms as well. Church, we love you. We're praying for you. Take care.